I'm Jans Holstrom, and welcome to Real Professional, the podcast where we talk to real professionals from the video game industry. Today, we're joined by special guest Dan Mullins. Say hi. Hello. Also joined by DreadXP owner Ted Hinchke. Hey, how's it going? And communications director Starlight Skies. Hello. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Daniel's upcoming game, Inscription, some of his older work, and uh, what he's been up to since we last talked to him. So, DJ, drop that sick beat. So, uh, want to start with a little bit of gaming news, everyone? Yeah. yeah sure, let's go. What's, what's news in the world oh, of man. gaming, Jones? Okay, so does anybody here play with a controller? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no? Yeah, depending on the game, yeah. Okay, uh, how about a wired controller? Yeah, I usually plug my Xbox controller in, so I guess that's technically true. Yes. See, I'm in, a, I'm in a weird place where I play with a Switch Pro controller right now on my PC, but a man in Roberson, Tennessee, was electrocuted <gasps> playing with a wired controller during a thunderstorm. Uh, his house was struck by lightning, and it went right up the controller into his hands. He was not injured. He called paramedics to come check him out. But we need to all consider getting wireless controllers now, I think. Did he get really good at the game? Because that's the start of like a movie where he gets <laughs> transported into Double Dragon or something. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was or, imagining like a PlayStation commercial that would that <laughs> just seems right at home. I honestly the think report. that that's like a good pitch for your wireless or your wired controller is like so insulated, like so sturdy, you can get struck by lightning and it won't hurt. What kill streak does that give you in Call of Duty? <laughs> getting electrocuted during the game. Yeah, yeah. how many how many kills do you need to get before yourself. you can like electrocute your opponent through through the TV? Is that higher than a nuke or lower than a nuke? Imagine if you were playing Hades and you're like, oh man, Zeus is not happy with what I'm doing right now. <laughs> All of a sudden, boom from the sky, lightning. Yeah, that'd be that'd be pretty good. I can't imagine getting struck by lightning while gaming. Like that's the last thing you expect, you know? Like you're you're sitting there in your Couch. How did he even get? Like, how did the lightning get into his house? Like, did he forget to lock the doors or something? <laughs> how did the lightning get in? You know, lightning. It, it's sneaky. Yeah. Um, yeah. He he was just playing his game. Lightning hit his house, and this is not unheard of. This happened last year live on a Twitch stream. To a uh, a streamer was playing Rocket League, had just made a score, and lightning hit her house up her controller to her hands, and she actually suffered burns on her hands. Oh. That's pretty. That's. I, I, it's like I can't imagine a more shocking way to die. <laughs> oh my god! So yeah, I just want to warn everybody. Just want to warn everybody. You know, maybe move to that wireless controller. Maybe that's the sign you need. You know, people out here getting struck by lightning. Well, that is that is practical advice, Jans. Thank you so much for that. I, I figured I'd bring in something practical to start out my tenure on Real Professional. Is uh, don't use wired controllers. Yeah, I mean that's a good one. Also, don't use your home phone during a thunderstorm if we're talking about, oh. like, old technology. Yeah. Do, you, do I, Am I also not supposed to use one of those, like, pull-top, chain-pull toilets with the tank at the top or something like that? 
Yeah, don't use those either. Everything is a lightning rod. Don't go, don't go, yeah. in a, don't go on a ride in one of my big, t- old-timey, big front-wheel bicycles, you know? Those, yeah. those I'll put away my telegraph machine. Yeah, don't send telegrams during a thunderstorm. <laughs> don't hop on your velocipede to go for a ride. <laughs> Just, all right, so... Yeah, don't use the wired controllers. The next bit of news that I have is a pretty big one for us in the uh, horror game sphere. They're doing Dead Space again. Is anybody excited about that? Just me? I'm super excited about it, but go ahead, Star. Oh, sorry, I I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, I was saying that, like, I'm... Whenever it comes to news like that, uh, I, I'm so neutral to everything. I don't get hyped and excited, but I also, like, I'm not like, oh, it's going to be terrible. I'm just always neutral. I have no expectations, and I figured out that was, like, the best way to handle, like, any situation. I am, uh, my opinion on Dead Space is that I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm not surprised that they're remaking it because like, that's just what you do now when you run out of ideas. Um, I mean, <laughs> I mean, D- Dan, Dan over here is only, uh, one bad inscription away from re, re, remaking Pony Island, right? Like we're all at that, like, <laughs> shit, what do I do? You know? And I'm not trying to say that like negatively. It's just like, you know, you have something that succeeded on your hands and as a company, you're like, I guess we can just redo it, like, and, and films do it. And it's not even just, like, the gaming industry. Like, a car has been a car for a long time, you know? Like, they can heat seats all they want, but they're, like, you know, it's basically a car still. Um, until our lord and savior, Elon Musk, turned them into rocket ships or something. I don't know. I just want to get clicks, so please click on those podcasts, Elon Musk fans. But, uh, you know, the Dead Space remake, obviously, it was going to... You know, but I, I would like to see the series go forward rather than kind of sit in the remake cycle. Um, I think if we've learned, if I've learned anything from God of War, you know, you can do a reboot without just having to remake it. And, um, I think that the new God of War showed that, you know, there's a way forward for basically, you know, any franchise. And that franchise, like, literally ended with him, like, killing all of the gods and then himself. Uh, so, sorry, spoiler alert for God of War 3. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, Dead Space, it kind of, you know, they, they went off on this weird Phil Collins co-op adventure that was moderately received, and now they're going back to the the old staple of the remake, and it's just like, you know, I'm excited because I, I really like Dead Space, I love, I loved the franchise, but at the same time, it's like, how excited can I be to replay a game that really isn't even that old? Maybe Dead Space is old at this point, I don't know how old I am, it, what is it like? 50, 60 years old. 2008, I believe, was Dead Space yeah, original. Yeah, so. yeah, I guess that is kind of old. So, I don't know. I don't time, I think time makes. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say time makes uh, Dead Space remakes of us all. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just I think that if, if, it's, if the game is old enough that the people that were born when it came out can't yet play it. Like, you know, because they're 13 and it's like an M-rated game, then maybe it shouldn't be remade. But I don't know. That's probably a pretty stupid way to look at it, given the modern age of you know, the, the, the tide of constant content being pumped into our, our brains. So I want to talk about Star's uh, neutrality on this, because I've never figured out how to do that. I've been playing games for most of the 31 years I've been alive, and I still get unreasonably excited about games, even though I know I'm going to be disappointed eventually. So how do you do it, Star? Uh, I don't know, make games (laughs) where like, um, I see games differently than most people, but you know, it's mostly like, I don't know. It's like, uh, okay. You're married, but (laughs) 
imagine that you were going on a date, right? If you have huge expectations for this other person, uh, it could be wonderful, it could be terrible, you know, that sort of thing. And I like, I just don't think either one of those is like necessarily the healthiest because you don't want to have too high expectations or too low. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, same thing with like getting a job or same thing with anything else in life. Like, I feel like just coming into it with no expectations, being like, whatever happens, happens. Probably the best way to go about it. Okay. (laughs) I I think that's a good mentality to have. (laughs) I just don't want to exert energy. um, And I, yeah. And like Ted and I have talked about this a lot about opinions and how like, not every, like just because somebody has opinion doesn't mean it's everything. Like I think people get too emotionally attached to things and then when other people are like, no, I kind of disagree, you know, because they're already emotionally attached, like for some reason they, they think of it as personal. Um, so that's why I just don't like see myself in it. I don't put emotional attachment to it. Does that make sense? Am I crazy? Yeah, no, I totally yeah, get no, it. Yeah. I, I, and that's, that's the thing is like when I, when I say that like my expectations for dead space, my level of excitement is like, there's a certain amount of detachment that goes into that opinion because mm-hmm. like, I don't like, if the new Dead Space comes out and it's bad, I'm not going to go, like, I'm not going to go onto a single tweet or, or a thread. What do they call, like, like a, like a Reddit or a, I'm an old man. I don't know what the kids are using nowadays. I, I'm trying to be relevant. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not going to take a single talk about this. Um, <laughs> like, I, I'm just not going to, like, I don't, like, if it's bad, then I'm just going to be like, oh, well, then, you know, it was bad. But there's some people out there that are going to be like, I guess less with Dead Space than like with other Sacred Cow franchises. But like, that's the interesting thing about Dead Space, right? Is that it was like really well received and people liked it, but it didn't get like milked to shit for 40 years to the point where like, you know, people have like, given themselves over to the the sacred church of reading too much into dead space you know like they have with certain other games i'm gonna be vague but everyone knows exactly what i'm talking about so yeah we know resonant hills we played that before oh yeah no of course i'm talking about the persona franchise (laughs) this is the piss off all the nerds what else I, I was just disappointed that Bloober Team wasn't making the new Dead Space. I had really pinned all my hopes on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had I had a seven part series about how uh, a Bloober Team Dead Space was going to destroy the gaming industry. So, yeah, I just want to say Blooper gets such a bad rep. Like, guys, like anybody out there who's riffing on Blooper, like I really want you to make games. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, game making games is so difficult, and like even Ted and I haven't made a perfect game, and. <laughs> I don't know. All my games are pretty perfect. <laughs> I've taken away from this is now I can't be excited about your game, Dan. I'm sorry. I've played a lot of Inscription, but now I don't care about it at all. I'm uninstalling it from my Steam library right now. We all hate Inscription here. We're an anti-Inscription podcast. Yeah. Shit. I should have yeah, told you that this was... the wrong podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's uh, let's talk about Inscription. I've played Inscription. Has anybody yeah, else played it yet? Let's switch to games that we're excited about, like and have emotions <laughs> over, like Inscription. Which actually, like, not even just like you know being nice to the guest. I'm genuinely like, uh, excited about Inscription. I, I so I, I first I first I first played Inscription um, back at DreamHack 2019, I think, right? Or was it 2020? Yeah. Do you remember? It was 2019. Yeah, that that was not happening in 2020. Oh wait, oh wait. Now that you say it. Maybe it was very early 2020. You know what? I think it was early yeah. 2020 because I think it was right after PAX. Yeah, um, no, you're East, right. Right? Yeah. And um, that's actually where I met you. And that's how... Yeah, it was February 2020, I believe. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, exactly. skipping ahead in the timeline, but that was actually you know where I first met you and how we kind of got connected for one of the Dread X collections. So that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we were walking around with a suit, and everyone was like, "Whoa, this guy is important." <laughs> Whoa, this guy is so stunningly attractive. We all should try to talk to him. Um, yeah, that too. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, I mean, I remember playing it, and and like that just just distilled essence of like. Oh, this is something unique and cool. And the moment you go from the card game, because you're playing this card game, you're like, this is really like, there's something dark and sinister here. And then you pull out into the cabin. It was unlike anything else. And I don't want to, I, I, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here. I just want to say that, you know, even from those early days, um, I've been excited about Inscription for, you know, quite a long time. So. Well, thank you. Been playing a lot of the current build on Steam. And yeah, it is, uh, it is unlike anything I've played before. It's got oh. this pervasive sense of dread throughout i it no matter what you're doing in the game you feel mildly uncomfortable about your like surroundings and you haven't have you gotten to the the part where things change i am actually super terrible at the game and uh i've gotten to like the first no i got to the second boss because i remember i got the achievement for it but uh and i've been solving because like okay so the people that don't know Inscription is a card game, kind of along the lines... I say kind of along the lines, but it's not anywhere close to something like Slay the Spire, but it is a card battler, kind of a deck-building game. And um, you're in a cabin, and you're playing cards with this crazy person whose face you can't see. And But you can stand up from the table pretty much any time you're not playing cards, and you walk around the room that's kind of like an escape room, where you can solve puzzles to unlock different cards. And some of the cards talk to you, and I like that a lot. And I want to talk to you about stoats at some point. But it's just, it's a really weird experience. And I guess you're saying it changes a lot at some point? Yeah, a lot. But I won't spoil it. (laughs) Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Here on the Daniel Mullins Games Spoiler Podcast, we won't talk (laughs) about spoilers. But I saw that on your Itch page that you had an early version of the game up. And uh, where did that idea come from? It's just so unique. Yeah, um, that that game was made in a weekend for Ludum Dare, which is a game jam where you make a game in either two or three days. And then that was one of the few Ludum Dare games that... um, I liked and was excited about it enough and other people were excited about it enough to take it a few steps further. And I spent a few more days on it, kind of cleaning it up. And then it eventually turned into inscription. Um, but I guess the inspiration I was, I mean, I periodically go back into magic, the gathering. I've been playing it like on and off since I was uh, basically a kid. And so I think I was back into one of my magic phases. And now they've got magic, the gathering arena, which is like the best way to play it online. Um, so I was deep into that and I was just in the mindset of making a card game, I guess. And it's, it's, it's always hard to say exactly where all the ideas come from. It probably is like subconsciously picked up from movies and other things I was watching or reading or whatever. Uh, I think there's a bit of a vibe, a vibe about the game that comes from like my area of the world, British Columbia. It, like I was trying to go for a woodland setting that was similar to the Pacific Northwest. And I tried to pick animals as the cards that come from here. And like just the vibe of being in the woods uh, or in the mountains in a cabin, I was trying to capture that. Definitely comes across. What What's up with the stoat? Like the stoat is kind of the unofficial <laughs> mascot of 
inscription. Like, uh, what, what's yeah. up with the stuff? I had to look up a stoat, and I was like, is that a real thing? And it is. Yeah, I was just picking animals kind of willy-nilly. Um, the, the stoat was... I was just looking for some weak little forest creature, and I was just... I think I was probably browsing, like, a list of animals, and stoat jumped out at me. I think I knew the, the, the term stoat from like the Red Wall book series where they're all like little mammals and in some like medieval sort of world. And there were stoats in that series. So maybe that's where I got it. Uh, but I can't tell you there's a lot going on with that stoat that you'll learn when things change. Uh, but I can't spoil that. <laughs> I like I like that you were just Googling what is the worst, weakest animal. And you're like, that's yeah, the one. Yeah. Well, it has to be one step up from a squirrel because they're the the basic fodder that you use to sacrifice for bigger creatures. So it has to be bigger than a squirrel, but weaker than like a wolf. Apologies to the squirrel community for all the, the squirrel yeah, sacrifices I've done in that game. <laughs> yeah, I know the squirrel Wait. community out there is strong. But... <laughs> so I've played uh, Pony Island. I've played the Hex. Um, inscription feels like. Probably the, is it the most ambitious thing you've done so far? Yeah, I would say in some ways it is, and in some ways my last game, the Hex, was was that way. Um, but I'd say it's it's up there. <laughs> it's either this or the Hex that has been the most ambitious. Yeah, I, actually, so I you... wanted to ask a question about that. Sorry, Jans, I don't mean to jump in here, but um, of course, you know, the, the Hex was a very ambitious game. You know, Pony Island is is. Yeah. is is well loved, and I don't. I'm, I'm certainly not talking shit about it, but I'm just saying it was like it was kind of a sillier thing that you did. And I, I know I've talked about this before that you weren't really expecting it to be as successful as it was, right? Yeah, definitely not when I started it, or when I was even like halfway. It was only near the very end that things started to seem promising. Yeah, and then so you know you come out with the hex, which is far more ambitious, and you know you're putting all this extra work in it, and it doesn't do as well. And that must be, yeah. you know, in a certain way, really hard on you emotionally. You know, you're putting all this extra yeah. work into it, and it doesn't do well. Um, how do you get yourself back on that horse of being like, I'm going to do something just as ambitious again, and this time I'm going to just believe it's going to do as well or even better than Pony Island? Yeah. Um, well. Yeah, the Hex definitely did way worse in terms of sales. And even in ter- like, if you look at the review percentage, it's still very high, but it's like a couple percent less than Pony Island. And on the Metacritic, it's a bit less. But there are still some like pretty encouraging things. Like, um, by the end of it, I felt that I was really proud of it. Um, and I also had. Uh, a community of kind of like diehard fans emerged that weren't really there for Pony Island. Like now I had these people who were totally versed in both games and they were like Daniel Mullins games fans, not just like I love Pony Island, but like I like what you're doing in games. And so there was still some very encouraging stuff to come out of the hex. And it wasn't like a, you know, a total flop. It like certainly made back its costs and is still selling. Um, so I guess I wasn't, it wasn't like I was totally, uh, destroyed by, by it not kind of performing as well as it could have. And, um, I think, um, and part, part of it is maybe detaching a little bit from the, um, reception or the success of the game and just really enjoying the process of making it that made it not that hard to just pick up and do the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was just gonna say that uh I like 
when doing games like uh and i coming i'm coming from like a different perspective like uh to me i don't know if you would agree with this but to me developers like you and kira feel like you're doing game dev as art is would you say that's true yeah i would say that yeah Okay. Yeah. So like when I come into game dev, like I, I appreciate the art process, but I also like, I watched, I was in a lot of communities where developers just like struggled so hard and you have like, as a developer, you have all these ideas and you have to choose an idea <laughs> to be like, this is my yeah. commercial game that I'm going to to make, but I, I want the artistic creativity. So I have fun doing it and I'm passionate about it, but also I want it to sell. Um, and so yeah. like, that's where like Ted and I like, been trying to do with dread xp is trying to find that balance yeah i think there's um yeah i think as an indie developer you have to switch your hats often yeah you can't just only you can't totally disregard the business side of it yeah sorry ted what were you saying no i mean i think it's just interesting it's an interesting point that he was making about the different metrics that you can follow you know like you, you can you can look at something like pony island which has this widespread appeal um but a lot of that like especially when it's kind of something that's a little bit more meme or popular trend is like you're not really sure if people are a fan of your work or of like the culture surrounding it, you know, like the person yeah. that made the room, the game or whatever that did really, really well. Um, you know, it's like, are they a fan of this person's comedic style and the programming and their art, or are they just a fan of the room? And around the time that Pony Island came out was like a time when a lot of these, what, what, how would you describe it? Games that were fake, not it's the games that were not really what they initially presented themselves. How would you, how would you describe it, Dan? Uh, yeah, I don't know how to describe that category either, but I do know what you mean. And I do think, yeah, there were a sort of type of games that maybe like you could even put Undertale into of, um, yeah, like defying expectations and being purposely obscure about what they are. Yeah. Doki Doki Literature Club came out like, um, I don't know exactly, but maybe like within a year of Pony Island after, or maybe just over a year. I can't remember. Yeah, Frog but, Fractions yeah. is another one. Yeah, um, well, that was the granddaddy potentially of of these this type of game. Yeah, exactly. That came way way before. What's that horror one? Baldi's whatever, whatever. Baldi's Basics, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's another one. It's like you know you're you're within this. Um, this infrastructure of like existing fans for this kind of style. And it's like, you know, it's kind of interesting to find, you know, what you're talking about is like breaking out of that style and developing a fan base that's fans of you and how mm -hmm. that in some ways that's even more rewarding than just the sales figures. Personally. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was. I mean, I'm certainly not saying that I like didn't care about the sales figures. I certainly was like dismayed. And, and I think also I was, I, I remember being very disappointed that like, for a while, I couldn't even get a Metacritic score because I wasn't, I didn't have enough total volume of reviews. So I, I was just kind of bothered that I, I felt like I, it had been looked over a little bit. But on the other hand, I, I did understand why. Like, I think it, at first glance, it doesn't really present that well. And people who play it all the way will be like, Oh my God, I, I didn't think much of this game. But then when I got to the end, I, I thought it was uh, great, but they would always preface it by saying, like, when I started, I didn't think much of it. Which is, of course, uh, not great for sales. <laughs> yep, that's something I think about all the time. You know, like yeah. when the developers are pitching to Ted and I, I'm thinking uh, how streamers are going to react to it. Like, are they going to pick it up? 
because Ted and I both get PR emails and uh, most of the time the, the, those games are not catered to like me or my audience or what I'm into. They're just shotgunning games out there. And that is like, to me, it's not a very good approach. So I think about like streamers, how they're, how they're looking at games and then also the trailer. What's the trailer going to show? Mm-hmm. So like, like for example, with encryption, like what, like how did you decide what was going to go in there? Because like Ted and I, we just did a trailer for MFN and Spookware uh, together. And that was yeah. a struggle as Ted will say. Yeah. I, I think I had two priorities for the inscription trailer. I was trying to just show the most compelling imagery that the game had to offer. Like the coolest looking stuff, but not spoil as I've alluded to a few times, there's a drastic shift in the game. And you can see, like, if you go back to the trailer, there's, like, millisecond clips of, like, some really wacky-looking stuff that happens right at the end. Uh, and that is the uh, secret part. And then I was trying to not, like, spoil it too much, so I kept that to, like, a minimum. And then otherwise just trying to show cool imagery. And, and I guess I was also trying to um, tell a bit of a story from the trailer of starting at the table and showing the cards and then uh the moment where you stand up as the next step and then things going off the rails after that so normally you're self-publishing your stuff but this time you're pairing up with devolver digital um does that afford you kind of more tools at your disposal for making your game it surprisingly not that much. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to like uh, say anything less of Devolver. It's just that I came in quite late to publishing with them. And um, so it's not like they're really assisting with the development aside from some important things like localization and QA. Um, but for the most part, I it was kind of a gamble that, that they could just reach a way wider audience through their reputation and their channels. Um, and, and E3 was coming up at the time and they were saying, we can put your trailer into our showcase. And so that was really tempting. And of course, with a publisher, you give some of your revenue up, but I was kind of gambling that, um, the revenue I gave them would be more than made up for with, uh, the huge PR boost basically that their brand provides. And I think so far it's, it's turned out quite well. I don't know if somewhere in the contract, I'm not allowed to say exact numbers, but I, I basically tripled my wish list shortly after their um, my Steam wish list shortly after their E3 presentation, and then since then it's been like a steady stream. So they they really did blow open the door for for that. So I think it's it's working out so far. Yeah, the first I saw of Inscription was E3 this year. Actually, did the yeah. news coverage on it, and uh, I was like, I need to know who this is. And Ted said, Oh, I, I know the guy. Just reach <laughs> out, and uh, it led to all this. So. Well, there you uh, go. They must be doing something, right? <laughs> yeah, no. So they're pretty, go ahead. So they're just, you know, it, it helps mostly with visibility having, you know, Devolver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, a lot of those, like, showcases and stuff are, re- are really, really cool. I'm kind of interested to see, like, kind of where that infrastructure kind of goes in the future with, um, you know, especially with something like E3, you know, like, you're, you're talking about... You know, it's so great that there was this E3 showcase. And, um, you know, it's funny because there's been these talks of E3 dying forever and all these different showcases popping up. Um, you know, and you as an independent kind of developer, I mean, aside from you working with Devolver now, I mean, even even with working with Devolver, you still do highly consider yourself independent, uh, correct? Yeah. 
it's a I guess a pretty ill-defined thing, but uh, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. yeah um, no, no one tells me what to do creatively, so I think that's pretty important. Yeah, no, I, I get that. Um, uh, and it's like, you know, but with with all these different showcases, like, how, how would you suggest that someone that doesn't have a devolver, someone that is independent, like, try to get their name out there in all these different, when there's, there's so many different methods of doing, I just slapped my microphone. How would you recommend that someone <laughs> do that uh, with all these different, avenues of you know uh, of promotion now especially with like you know different showcases and different conventions and things like that yeah I, i'm certainly even with the experience i have so far making indie games i don't think i'd consider myself an expert and probably you and star might be better equipped to answer that question but i mean what i would probably say is focus on the game first um like make something that's like quality and some compelling because that will i mean that's just the most important thing but once you have that maybe i would say approach publishers and and if it if you've got something good they're going to be interested good as a <laughs> well yes Ganker. of course it's highly, highly subjective of course but i mean at least good in your own eyes maybe i don't know uh something that you're very proud of that you think um, can hold up against some of the stuff out there but there's some devs out there that are amazing at pitching. And like, I, I love when devs like know how to pitch a game. They know the elevator pitch. They know, uh, you know, what makes that game, uh, like cool. Uh, but the problem is, is like when you actually try to sell a game and you, you probably know this, that it's like the developer isn't always there. Like the, the player needs to take a chance. They need to take faith that the game is good because the developer yeah. can't be there all the time to explain the game. So, um, yeah, just because a developer is good at pitching, uh, like, um, I'm always like, okay, but what if the developer wasn't here and I was just looking at the game? You know, would I still want to play this? Like, yeah. that's, like, one of the, like, I have a lot of thoughts and, and feelings about this. Also, like, there's a lot of amazing, really good games out there, uh, but, you know, they, they're just not marketable. And marketability is like a very different thing than games. And, uh, I've had developers get really angry about this. Uh, because it's just like, there's a difference between the, the artsmen, the crafts of games, but like also what a customer is actually willing to spend 20 bucks on. Yeah. Are two different, uh, criteria. And it's just like, if you're a smart developer that, that wants to do this commercially, like you want to pay your bills with this, it's like, you need to kind of like have that skill set of, of knowing that. Cause it is its own skill set of like knowing what is marketable, like, uh, ponies, like you had the fortunate, <laughs> there was a TV show I heard yeah. <laughs> about ponies. So uh, that meme ability of it, and then also your your game was very tongue in cheek and um, like yeah, silly. Uh, it just like hit all of these like internet criteria that people like resonated with. Um, like yeah, and then you also how you unfolded the game just like kept surprising people. So, and, but like I feel like that's your that is your signature. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> yeah. good at that. <laughs> Well, thanks. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, there's a lot going right with the marketability of Pony Island, and you have to deliver. Yeah, it's you can't just deliver something that is of a certain quality. You have to have both going for you. So, what would you say the audience is for Inscription? Like, what kind of players? Um, I, I, in my mind, as I was developing it, developing it, I imagined that I would bring together uh, people who are interested in the deck building roguelike genre or card games more generally and people who are 
maybe more interested in the other games I've made who are more looking for a sort of fresh uh, indie game that is unique or quirky in some way, and maybe bringing together those two audiences and having both of them be satisfied with the experience. Um, the card game people kind of appreciating these weird story things that are going on, and then the indie people maybe taking a chance on trying to learn a card game and deciding it's um, the genre that they might be interested in, at least in this case. So like Slate Aspire and Dicey Dungeons? Yeah, that, that, exactly. Yeah, I'd call those both uh, the deck-building roguelikes. Um, so yeah, Slate the Spire is probably the biggest one, to my knowledge. And so yeah, definitely people who, who liked that probably have, find a lot to like in Inscription. Yeah, I've played a lot of Slay the Spire and Inscription scratches that same itch, as it yeah. were. That's good. That's yeah. Right oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm your audience. It's just me. <laughs> I mean, no, I think I think that the audience, it, I, I think you guys are way underselling Inscription. I know that I'm a, a big fanboy, but I think that Inscription is like one of the most surprisingly, it, it, it hits you in a way that other games like Slay the Spire don't. Like Slay the Spire has Ooh. some addictive gameplay, right? And and you definitely you definitely hit that with the 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 card game element, and especially you know you introduce these power ups that make it you know have their like a little bit of a strategy element to it. But so much of Slay the Spire is just the fact that it's constantly repeatable. I mean, it's it's basically. Yeah. A, a gotcha game, but you know, on with 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 a significant more more substance. I don't want to dunk on Slay the Spire. I think it's a great game, but <laughs> like the, Slay the Spire is designed the same way that League of Legends is designed, right? Which is like you start a game, even if you lose or you you win, your next impulse is to click start again. the The main driving force of Inscription is not that it's to to, it's to discover what else there is to see, and in a way, right. it's, it's kind of like um. It's like an escape room like that where you're like you're driven by the desire to overcome and the the what what not knowing what lies beyond the next step. And um like to, to combine those two elements is incredibly difficult. I mean, the only game I can really think of that did something similar was something like uh Dead Cells, which is why I think that that was so successful is oh, like, yeah. you had this combination of that rapid um here's the action, here's all this stuff, and then you were constantly unlocking more things, finding new things. Um, Hades is kind of like that too, right? Like, you know, I, I actually yeah. haven't played much of Hades, but um, similar kind of, of style to it. But what you've done is you've taken that, what's typically reserved for an action arcade format, and converted it into the kind of the horror game exploration thriller space. And I, I think it's I think it's fantastic. Well, that's very kind. Thank you. Yeah, Hades... Uh definitely did give me a lot to think about and i think um i think if you have a similar premise you end up reaching similar conclusions like i actually had found when i played hades that they had made a few decisions that i had also made independently um to do with like how do you uh, have a roguelike a repeatable roguelike loop but then you're actually trying to have a linear story play out across these roguelike uh runs um, so I thought that was pretty interesting, and I wouldn't be surprised if when Inscription comes out, there'll be some people comparing it. Um, not to say that like it's uh, better or as good or anything, but they might mm -hmm. compare some of the ideas in it to Hades. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um, I mean, yeah, I, maybe just because Hades is so popular right now, though. <laughs> it's, like, yeah, it's hard yeah, not yeah, to be compared yeah. to Hades yeah. at the current moment. It won all of the yeah. awards.
Yeah. And uh, about the Slay the Spire thing, yeah, I think Inscription, yeah, does offer this sort of curiosity and uh, uh, this kind of search for a deeper meaning or, or deeper knowledge within it uh, that Slay the Spire doesn't have. But I should say that it also, I do think Slay the Spire, from like a gameplay perspective, strictly, is maybe more compelling or, or deeper than Inscription. It, there's I played a lot of Slay the Spire too, and there's so many like um, unique emergent combinations uh, of all the different game, like the artifacts and the cards and stuff. That like I was shooting for that a bit with Inscription, but it it is not quite as robust as Slay the Spire. Um, I don't know, just to compare. yeah, but that that's the, I mean Slay the Spire. That's all it has, right? Like those mechanical complexities right. is like the core of the game. And yeah. I will say that as as many cool combos as there are inside the spire there's also like a ton of dead ends it's not a perfectly balanced right, right. game yeah and, yeah yeah i i tend to personally i tend to prefer games that have more tailored good options than just having more options some of which are dead ends like i prefer oh, yeah. kind of more distilled gameplay because like i don't I don't have time. Like, I'm not a multi-class guy, right? Like, I don't want to know what happens if I merge a barbarian and a wizard. <laughs> what the? Because then, then you get to the point where I'm you're curious like, curious about that. You know what I mean? Though, like, there's always that guy in the playgroup who's like taking some kind of weird background and some weird traits so that he can technically suplex a dragon. You know, like, right. oh, I did this exact build of <laughs> monk, but with extra strength of barbarian stuff. It's like, okay, yeah. what? And, and and that kind of min-maxing because of too loose of a rule set or too robust always kind of turns me off because I, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm 400 years old. I don't have time to learn every <laughs> intricacy of a game. So I prefer that kind of more simple rule set that's like kind of, you know, easy to learn, a little bit harder to master. But, you know, there's, there's more, it's more contained. You get what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. I think in my quest to bring those two groups of players together, I will probably be able to capture the indie non-card game people better if I'm not blasting them with like rules minutiae. <laughs> I, I do I actually looking... have... go go ahead, Jans. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, going through your itch library, uh, you've done a ton of jams. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, a ton. But I saw a fishing horror game, and I know that Ted <laughs> is internally groaning right now. <laughs> um, because I ran the uh, the fishing horror jam back in 2020, 2019, oh, 2020. Wow. Uh I'm a big fan of merging fishing and horror, and I saw that. Very and I was like, oh. very cool. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is my dude right here. So when can we expect a, a more fleshed out version of Beneath the Ice? Well, there is. I don't know if you know about. Wait, there's like there's Beneath the Ice and Beneath the Surface. I made them, and I don't remember which is which. But there's one that. Uh, spoiler alert contains a secret ending for the hex. Uh, that is actually, okay, yeah, that's beneath the surface, uh, which is actually based on beneath the ice. So it actually exists right now. You'll be amazed to hear. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm quite amazed. It's on Steam. It's called Beneath the Surface. It's free. And it was even played by a, um, a sort of big YouTuber, um, with I think maybe like a bit of a younger audience. Uh, and trying to play something lighthearted, lighthearted fishing game, and if the uh, YouTuber had no idea that it had dark secrets within it. Which, uh, which YouTuber was that? I'd love to see them slowly come to the realization that they're not playing. <laughs> never realize, actually. Uh, they never do, but people in the comments are telling them all sorts of stuff. Uh, let me see uh, if I can find it. 
Anyway, yeah. Oh, it's... Uh, did you publish it under a different name? Yeah, I did. Yeah, that was part of the secret. Um, is that something you frequently do? Is this your alter ego, or is this a one-time thing? Uh, not frequently do it. I, this is the first time I did that. And you know what? I'm going to be extremely petty right now. I'm not going to say the name of the YouTuber, because this guy did not credit my game, link it to Steam, at all. He didn't even say the name of the game, so, uh, you know what, YouTuber? You don't get a shout-out. There you go. Yeah, dunk on Yeah, him. I love that. Hell nice. yeah. I um, hate it when, like, content creators do that. They just, like... Yeah, that was... Yeah. That was it, not even to say the name of the game. It's like, it just says, like, weird fishing game. <laughs> yeah, when I post the streamer on our Twitter, I always tag them. Yeah. I them. Like, I, yeah, and it's just like, if, if you want credit, you got to give credit. Hell yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> well. Tell yeah. me my, my own video of the fishing game. Maybe I'll send it to you privately, anyway. not in the podcast. So I, I, I do there have, um, I know that we're kind of running on, uh, out on a little bit of time, but I do actually want to ask you one thing, Daniel, which I, I think sure. is, um, you know, especially important to our game dev audience. Um, so one of the things about you as a creator is that you, you do really value your creative control. And, yep. um, you know, you, you like to do a lot of the stuff yourself from creating the trailer to like the music to the, the visual design. Not the music, I should say. Yeah. But what yeah. What do you say? I just wanted to say it, not the music. I don't want to take No, but you, you have like heavy hand in the creation of the music, like as opposed to like if you're working on Assassin's Creed, it doesn't like if I'm working on the, the gameplay mechanics, I don't have any say in the music, you know, like, but you have a lot right. of control over your project. Um, how yeah. do you learn? what to let go of like how have you like what in the course of your like learning what you can and can't do what you need like assistance on how have you come to to kind of accept other people's help in your work yeah uh, that's an interesting question i guess it really boils down to what i actually can even like what the skills i even have are like i never really had much of a musical talent um, and I don't know the software, and even if I did, I don't think I would compose really great music. So um, it was obvious that I would need help with that. And I think it's just, I maybe even my own detriment, I always try to do stuff myself if I can. And so I've only let go of the things that I really can't do, like also 3D modeling. Um, I'm sure if I spent a lot of time practiced, I could maybe get up to speed probably not as good as someone who's been doing it for a longer time. Um, but that one seems more unfeasible to, to, to try and learn. So it's just the stuff I can't do. Music, sound effects, um, 3D modeling. Uh, yeah. So how do you how do you then balance the vision that you had in your head versus what you get from, you know, whatever 3D modeler or whatever? Well, I actually tried. This is a lesson I learned um, when I was working for bigger companies uh, where you can really destroy a creative person's productivity and just their happiness like by overly dictating and not trusting them to deliver and micromanaging them. I saw it happen to creative people at the companies I worked at when um, people in manager roles were reaching their hands in too much and, and giving too specific and too much criticism. So I try to fight my urge to have creative control and actually to try to let go for these things that I can't do. and. Uh, when I get something that wasn't quite what I expected, instead of having a gut reaction of, oh, change it, I try to sit with it for a day or two. And then some, a lot of the time, most of the time, 
I actually realized that this could fit into what I'm doing and adapt to it sometimes. Yeah, no, so that's I think good advice. Let go more. Let go. And, and I think you, you find a person that you can trust that they do good work. Like, uh, Jonah, my, uh, uh, composer and sound designer. I'm so convinced of his talents that I don't need to tell him that much. Like, I know he's going to do something good. And so just give a basic idea of what I want and just let him run free is the best way to, to maximize that talent. No, that's great advice. I think that, um, yeah. you know, there's, there's the benefit of like learning to work with people as like part of the skill set of, um, you know, having to like be a developer. Cause like even the most talented developers, you know, they can't literally do everything. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, even if you're doing like the, the visual design or the coding and the programming, like someone's going to be doing like marketing, someone's going to be doing, yeah. you know, community management, someone's going to be doing QA. And if you don't know how to work with those people, like, you know, that's going to be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, if you are finding like that you're constantly micromanaging them, and you, you're not happy with what they're making, you probably just have the wrong person. You've got a bad relationship. And um, it, you should just find someone you trust and you know is going to do a good job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so sorry. I mean, I know that we're kind of coming up on time here. So, Jans, I don't want to bogart too many of the questions that you had. Oh, yeah. No, I was just saying, um, Daniel, I know you've got a meeting coming up, and we'll go ahead and yeah. wind down. Thanks so much for coming and talking to us, though. I'm super excited about Inscription, even though uh, I probably shouldn't put all my eggs in that basket. You know, I should temper my expectations, but I refuse. Yeah. I refuse okay. to temper my expectations. If it's not a 10 out of 10, 100 on Metacritic, I'll just uh, I'll devote my life to complaining on Twitter. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I hope you're ready for your new life. <laughs> oh, yeah. I needed a change. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems to be a, a solid career choice for most people to just complain on Twitter all the time. I mean, that, that can be uh, a full, that could be a whole ass person. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could just be that guy, you know, be that guy on Twitter. Like, you, it'll, it'll bring you a certain comfort, Dan, that whenever you post anything ever about one of your games, there's me in the comments. Like, yeah, I'm certainly really happy to have that. Yeah, I'll be your constant companion till the day I die from a rage-induced heart attack. Where's that Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks comedic love movie? It's like the the the, the hater and the dev is like someone is like so, like talking shit on someone's Twitter threads all the time, and then like they meet in real life and they don't know who they are and they like fall in love, like must love dogs or something like that. And, uh, like, yeah, and it's just like, oh, my God, I can't let them know that I was the hater in their thread or whatever. Or um, maybe, like, a like a, a sad video where, like, the person dies and then, like, they, they stop seeing the comments one day. Oh, that would be a great premise for, like, a horror movie is, like, you know, the, the hater, like, just stops commenting one day and he's like, what happened to them? And then it's, like, a murder mystery of finding out what happened <laughs> to the person. And it turns out that they just got, like like killed by some ghost. I don't know. I'm just, I'm thinking out loud here, but there's, there's a, there's a, there's something there. There's a movie here and Patrick listens to these. So <laughs> good, good. Well, yeah. Thanks everybody for showing up. Star, Ted, mm -hmm. Dan. Yeah, thanks background. to all of you for hosting me again. This is my second time on this podcast, but Yay. first time with the new hosts. Come back. Uh, oh, yeah, Absolutely I missed the will. first one. And I was like, you know what? For my first podcast, I want to get Daniel Mullins on. That's how much I've enjoyed Inscription. <laughs> oh, thank you. 
So everybody be sure to check that out whenever it comes out. There's there's your plug. I pre-plug. Yeah, Daniel, you want to go ahead and plug where it's going to be and price and all that stuff? Yeah, price actually is still to be determined, I believe, but it's going to be on Steam, thinking late October, probably. Um, and if you want updates on it, you could follow me on Twitter at dmullinsgames. Awesome. And Dan, uh, if you have a, a new a new trailer for it, uh, we do have a showcase coming up, so you should definitely submit yes. that. Yes. Okay, I don't have anything at the moment, but um, if it materializes, I'll get in touch. Well, even if you don't have a new one, if you just want to throw us... Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> If you have a trailer... Um, I have a trailer. That'd be fantastic. Uh, anyways, yeah, sorry, Janza didn't mean to bust in there at the end. Go ahead and do your wrap-up. Oh, no worries. I was just going to thank everybody, and uh, that's the show. We'll be back next time with some other developer that I'm going to bother until they come talk to me. Or someone else in the gaming industry. Someone. We definitely have more people planned. Yeah, someone that I can bother. That's the only criteria, <laughs> is that they're willing to be bothered. Yeah, and someone needs to get, like, hit by a train while using a Switch. Well, not a Switch, because that could actually happen. Uh like I'm, I'm trying to bring it back to the lightning strike. Someone needs to get oh. tornadoed while playing iPhone games on the toilet or something, and then we could uh, warn against uh, playing Pokemon Go on the toilet or the new Witcher Pokemon Pokemon Witcher Go. I will warn everyone: please buy a wireless controller. We don't want you to yeah. end up like that guy in Tennessee. Mm, yeah, pouring out for. It's gonna have to start. Start episode every episode with a game related injury. I think <laughs> the gamer safety update. All right, now it's off the rails. Now that it's off the rails, we can end. Yep. <laughs> and then it just cuts. Okay, cool. <laughs>